0: Good morning. The series that we're in is called Scary Close. I think that illustrated some of the scary close calls people, sometimes have. You know, just as Jesus practiced the wisdom of taking time away from the crowds uh, and the press of His public ministry and to have a time of refreshing, it's good for Sam to take a couple of weeks off from time to time to recharge his batteries. And even though he's here this morning... Uh, He has asked the old man to stand in for him, and in the process, this will increase your appreciation of him as our pastor. (laughs) Now, even though he now owns the longest tenure uh, as pastor of this congregation, he's now concluding his 20th year. He's got a few months to go yet, let's don't get too premature here. I will boast of having the second longest tenure, 12 years, plus a couple of more when we were without a preacher. And this coming week will mark the 41st anniversary of my first official sermon, and so I welcome the opportunity to get back up and hope that today I will be a little more edifying than that sermon back in 1975. And incidentally, uh, I had quit my day job with the Internal Revenue Service and I As I was beginning, I was practicing all week that special sermon that I wanted to have. And uh, the only one besides my wife and I who are here this morning who probably remember this is Joanne Rice. But we used to have pews in this room. (coughs) And um, just before I was about to get up to speak, one of our members named Bobby Gwynn, who always sat on the second row on the end with his wife Lou, uh, decided to have a heart attack. And uh, so now, before I could get up and speak, we had the ambulances come and they put him on a stretcher and they took him out this door. And I remember the last heroic act, now he survived uh, then, but uh, the last heroic act as they were taking him out is he took his offering out of his pocket and handed it off to one of the ushers. So later in the service, remember that example. (laughs) But I do thank God that he's blessed my wife and I to watch little Sammy grow up to be a preacher that he is. And I'm hopeful that his next 20 years will be a blessing to the growth and influence for good of the Livingstones Church. And I wouldn't mind being around for that next 20 years, but that's God's to determine. You also ought to note that this coming week on Tuesday is his 45th birthday, which my wife and I can't figure out because we're only 50 each. Uh, but he turns 45 and he is registered at Amazon.com. So... Now, as we have just witnessed in that short video clip, sometimes things can get scary close. And when I watch that clip, I have to wonder how the lives of those folks who could have been killed in an instant by what appeared to be a certain death, but they walked away unscathed, and were they changed by that scary and close encounter with death? Was there some wake-up call that God was giving them, some opportunity to alter their lives for some higher purpose? And perhaps you have had a scary close event that changed you. Now they say that confession is good for the soul. So this morning I'm going to make a confession. Now during the 9.30 service, my mother was here. So I made this in front of her. But such an event took place in my life. And now those of you who are here who work in law enforcement, uh, this event took place 49 years ago. So the statute of limitations, for what I'm about to confess, has surely <laughs> expired. In the summer of 1967, I worked for a little restaurant in Fort Wayne on the north side called Dairy Delight. It was like a Dairy Queen, but much nicer. And for a period of time there, I was the night manager, working until closing at 10 p.m. each night. And my, one of my younger brothers, Mike, worked there with me. And one night, after closing up before driving home... I got the idea of showing off my driving skills, not only to my brother, but to another kid that worked with us who was named Tim. And so this one night, I took my parents' 1967 Oldsmobile Delmont 88. There's a picture of it. It was sweet. It wasn't that color, but it was like that. And I drove up Indiana State Road 327 between Fort Wayne and Garrett, Indiana. It was a two-lane highway with a bunch of curves. This was at night. The Oldsmobile had a 300 horsepower, 425 cubic, engine, uh, cubic inch V8 engine. And as an 18 year old who was thinking that they were invulnerable to danger and speed, I drove that car up that highway at impressive speeds. Now comes the confession. The speedometer reached 110 miles per hour as I impressed my passenger with my driving skills, no traffic. No problems, we got back safely, and I was a legend for one night. However, the next night, my mother needed a few grocery items, and I drove the same Oldsmobile a few blocks up the street to a Maloli's grocery store on the northeast part of Fort Wayne. And before I got there, just that few blocks, the right front tire blew out. And I learned two very valuable lessons that evening. First of all, I learned how to change a flat tire and put the spare on, but more importantly, I was thunderstruck about what might have happened if that tire had blown out the night before. Now, my mother has not revoked my driving privileges even after I confessed this this morning, however my wife and my doctor might, but it has dawned on me how many lives would have been altered in a variety of ways. Not only have I driven at or very near the speed limit, well before becoming an old man, I have often thanked God for allowing me to be scared that with that close encounter that night. Now it's too late for my children to learn this lesson, but not my grandchildren who may be hearing. I hope they will learn a valuable lesson from their grandpa's half century old stupidity and not replicate his immaturity and scary close encounter. Now I use that confession and scary close encounter to introduce our lesson for this morning which will be found in the Gospel of John chapter four, in which I hope you will see a connection. And before we get into the text, I think it's important for us to understand the context of the setting and the persons in chapter 4. Now the setting for what takes place in John 4 is that Jesus and his disciples have been down in Judea and are now headed back to his home turf in Galilee. John the Baptist had made his impact on Judea with his calls to repentance and all the baptizing that he was doing. Even Jesus had been baptized by his cousin John. But then Jesus' public ministry began and John's influence began to recede as Jesus became more prominent and eclipsed John in influence and following. And as it became more powerful, the influence of Jesus, and he became known to the elite religious leaders in Jerusalem and Judea, he determined it was time to go back home to his turf in Galilee and do some teaching there. Now, In the first century A.D., the principal mode of transportation, obviously, was by foot or on beast of burden. And as you can see from this map, that his disciples have to go through an area called Samaria. And as we look at chapter 4, there are two principal issues to keep in mind. Who were the Samaritans? And how did Jewish men interact publicly with women? Today, the name Samaritan is generally attached to hospitals, And charitable endeavors, principally because Jesus used a Samaritan as an illustration of a stranger showing unexpected kindness and love to another. But that illustration stands out because of how Samaritans were viewed in Jesus' day. There was no positive connotation regarding Samaritans in the time of John chapter 4. In fact, Samaritans were despised by the Jews of Jesus' day because the Samaritan people, while sharing some history, of the, with the Jewish people were regarded as, by Jews as a mongrel race of people. Now, this is a picture of my grand dog, Lou. He's a mongrel. He was supposed to be a purebred beagle, but somehow his birth mother, a purebred beagle, encountered a black lab one night in a fit of debauchery, and so now Lou is the Samaritan of the family, but he's a good Samaritan. Now, the most common view as to the origin of the Samaritans is that they were a mongrel breed who developed as a result of intermarriages between earlier Hebrews of lower class in the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyrian settlers in Israel following the captivity of the northern kingdom in 722 to 721 B.C. Other pagans eventually infiltrated the land and mingled with them, and you can read about that in the Old Testament if you choose in Ezra, the fourth chapter. The term is found in the Old Testament only in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 29, and there it is being applied to the remnant in the land. And this group had their own brand of religion. It was a mixture of Jehovah worship and heathenism. The Old Testament describes King Josiah of the kingdom of Judah as the good king, and he sought to remedy this wickedness by trying to wipe them out in his day, as recorded in 2 Chronicles 34. Now, there was much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, and when the Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem, following that Babylonian captivity that we read about, the Samaritans offered their services, but they were rebuffed by the Jews, and the Samaritans responded in kind. And the Jewish historian Josephus characterizes the Samaritans as idolaters and hypocrites. There was an old Jewish saying in those days, may I never set eyes on a Samaritan. So, relations between Jews and Samaritans were not idyllic, to say the least. Now, several centuries before the birth of Christ, the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the one in Jerusalem. And here they offered sacrifices according to the Mosaic Code. During the reign of Antiochus IV in 175 to 164 BC, that Samaritan temple was renamed either Zeus Helianus or more likely Zeus Xenios. This temple was destroyed by John Hyrcanus in about 128 B.C., having been in existence for 200 years, and only a few stone remnants of it exist today. And during the first century, the religion of the Samaritans was similar to that of the Jews, except that they were more liberal, more kindred spirits of the Sadducees, for example, than the Pharisees. They accepted the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, but they rejected the rest. They observed certain Jewish feasts, and they also longed for the coming of a Messiah. Religiously, though, they were considered as foreigners. And when Jesus instituted a limited commission, not the Great Commission, but the limited commission of Matthew 10, the Samaritans were excluded. So, okay, that's the context with the Samaritan issue. And then there was the issue of how to treat a woman. The Jewish attitude toward women was less than ideal. While the Old Testament afforded great dignity to womanhood, uh, when you read about Proverbs uh, chapter 31, where it talks about a good woman who could find it, talks of all the virtues found in a woman. The Hebrews, however, over the years had imbibed some of the attitudes of paganism. And many a Jewish man started the day with a prayer to God, expressing thanks that he was neither Gentile, or a slave, or a woman. A Hebrew man did not talk with women in the street, not even with his mother, his sister, daughter, or wife. According to the most liberal view of Deuteronomy 24.1, a Hebrew husband could even divorce his wife if she was found familiarly talking with men. The biblical scholar William Barclay even tells of a segment of the Pharisees known as the bleeding and bruised Pharisees, so-called because when they saw a woman approaching, they would close their eyes, and hence they were running into things constantly. Now the Son of God, therefore, in one fell swoop, broke through two barriers, the one steeped in racial bigotry, the other a hurtful disposition that distanced the man from one of the sweetest treasures of God's creation. And one of the statements in this narrative, which seems most incidental, almost incidental, is John's comment that the Lord's disciples who were traveling with him had gone into the city to buy food. Now, on closer examination, that's also very significant because normally Jews did not eat food that was handled or produced by Samaritans. The rabbis taught let no Israelite eat one mouthful of anything that is a Samaritan's for if he eat but a little mouthful, he is as if he ate swine's flesh. They obviously didn't take in bacon. And yet the disciples are buying food in Sychar. Perhaps they are already beginning to be influenced by Jesus' kindly disposition toward all those fashioned in the image of God. One cannot but be reminded of a later circumstance when observing the boldness of Peter and John, certain Jewish leaders took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So perhaps Jesus' influence was already having its impact upon these men. So with that background, let's begin reading from John chapter 4, verse 4. And incidentally, this is the longest recorded one-on-one conversation that Jesus has in the New Testament. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Again, you can see from this map where Sychar is located as Jesus and the disciples journeyed from Judea back to Galilee. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. The well that Jesus came to probably looked much like this one. Earth packed up as a ledge around that well opening to prevent humans and animals from falling into the well. And so the ledge would have made a natural resting spot for Jesus. Now let me here pause for a moment to note that it was about noon. And that's significant because a communal well like this would have been a place where people uh, gathered and conversed while they drew their supply of water. It's a little like a group I meet with almost every morning at Panera Bread down here on Island Road. There's approximately 7 to 10 of us that drink coffee there each morning and talking about the happenings of the day. And if you ever saw the movies Grumpy Old Men or Grumpier Old Men, uh, that's us. But the drawing of the water would not take place in the heat of the midday. It would be early morning or evening. And this woman is coming at a time when she's not likely to encounter those who knew anything about her life or living situation. So let's continue with verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, uh, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. As we've already noted, that in itself was a departure from accepted social norms of the Jews. The significance of Jesus' simple request is not lost on this woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. So far, all that has happened is a brief exchange between Jesus and this woman that violated societal protocols, but nothing more. She doesn't even realize the significance of what Jesus has just told her. But all of that is about to change because Jesus is about to get scary close. Continuing with verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She still doesn't know how on target her question is. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now it's time to get scary close. And may I say, Jesus is truly a genius at getting scary close. Now before I continue with John's narrative, let me make an observation about how most of us interact with those who are not family at a level of comfort. And that is that most of us operate with a zone of privacy. We'll exchange pleasantries, like when you came in this morning, Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. Have a nice day. But it's usually very surface. When we are in a crowded elevator, it's usually eyes straight ahead. Watch the floor number indicator lights. Don't turn to the person next to you and say, Is everything okay between you and your wife? It just isn't done. We don't allow others, especially strangers, to get that scary close. Generally, we have completely different public and private personas. And if you are like me, you have that zone of privacy that you require. If I take my hand and extend arm length, that's my zone of privacy. Georgie Tibbetts this morning violated that, but she gets away with it. But generally, if somebody gets in your face... Now, I had one time when I was working for the Internal Revenue Service, I had a taxpayer... Get right up in my face and talk to me. He didn't raise his voice, but the very fact that he was up in my face made me very uncomfortable and want to kill him. But other than that, <laughs> this is a zone of privacy. I didn't kill him. I didn't, I didn't do anything to him physically. <clears throat> in other words, in public, I'm an actor. What you see here is probably not what my wife sees when we're at home. If you want to know what the real Chuck Barrington is like, my wife can tell you. But don't ask her, (laughs) because she might tell you. We're all actors the majority of the time. And while that is normative, I find it fascinating that the Greek word for actor is the Greek word hypocrites. Actors often wore masks of the characters because they were being someone other than who they really were. They were hypocrites, which is the origin of our English word hypocrite. But it's hard to get our masks yanked off to see us as we are when we're not acting. But Jesus does it with this woman. How does he do it? Continuing at verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now, social norms meant that Jesus shouldn't be talking to a married woman, but he could chat with her husband, so let's go get him. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Dun, dun, dun. What has Jesus done here? He has entered this woman's zone of privacy. He has stated a simple fact and as a result gotten pretty scary close to her. We to this day don't know this woman's name. I don't know if she legally had five husbands previous to this conversation with Jesus. And this was just Jesus' way of calling her Rosie heels." Men often did not live very long in the first century. And it's not out of the question that she could have been legitimately married five times. But one thing becomes abundantly clear from this conversation. That sixth dude is not her husband. Jesus didn't call for the stoning squad to come out. He didn't write a gossip column about it. He didn't talk about it with anyone else. He just got scary close to her, acknowledging that she needed to deal with an issue in her life. And what was her reaction? Verse 19. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I see that you are a prophet.'" Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. By trying to avoid further discussion of a major fault in her life and divert Jesus' attention to another subject, this woman now receives from Jesus a huge lesson on the shift of worship paradigm that is meaningful to all mankind since this conversation took place. And notice that Jesus didn't make this revelation to the religious elite, the priests and rabbis who were serving around the temple in Jerusalem and in Judea, He made it to a flawed Samaritan woman in a one-on-one conversation at a well. Continuing with verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And we just have to stand back and say, wow. That is a theological blockbuster of a statement. Made to a woman, made to a Samaritan woman at a well with no other witnesses. But there's more. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Jesus very rarely made this declarative statement about His identity and His mission, but to this flawed, vulnerable woman, in a moment of scary, close openness, she became the recipient of this news straight from the mouth of the Messiah Himself. Now, reading further into the fourth chapter of John, we find that the disciples return. They're surprised by Jesus talking with a woman, although they didn't have the nerve to challenge him about it. And the woman left her water jar there and went back and told the townspeople, who also probably looked down on her because of her situation. And they, she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Did he really tell her everything she had ever done? No, I think that was hyperbole but he got scary close, and it changed her. She overcame her shame and shared the joy of her discovery with those around her, and she helped to change the lives of her neighbors. Now, why am I looking at this passage in relation to the theme, Scary Close? Because we are in the process of signing up for the next session of small groups, and I know that there are several here in this room whose lives have been changed and made better because they became involved with a handful of others in their small groups and allowed them to get scary close and take the masks off. I love our worship together. In the last 45 years, the only times my wife and I have not been here to worship is if we were out of town or one or both of us were too sick to attend, and those times have been rare. I love being around my brothers and sisters and raising our voices together and enjoying the Word together, but the truth of the matter is, I still wear a mask when I come in. If I'm down, I try to still radiate that joyful, ebullient countenance that you have come to all know and love. We keep our secrets secret most of the time. After 45 years in this place, I could tell you story after story of those who entered into this room, who from all outward appearances were living happy, righteous lives, without a care in the world, but the truth was often far different. There were affairs and homes breaking up and struggles with alcohol and drugs, sometimes even secret violations of civil law that would eventually land them in prison. There were struggles with rebellious children. There was spousal abuse, but we kept the masks on. Never letting anyone see our flaws or our despair that we had anything but the act that we had put on for so many years because we didn't want to be looked down on and found to be sinful or vulnerable or weak. Liberation from all of those things came to that Samaritan woman when she had a one-on-one conversation with a man who did not judge her, although he could have, who did not condemn her, although he could have, but who got scary close enough to reveal the Messiah who would relieve her of all those issues in her life. She didn't know it that day, but within a couple of years, he would die for her. It's a small setting with others who share the same flaws and weaknesses and hopes and fears that the mask can come off. That's why I want to encourage you to sign up for a group, to think about it very seriously, to dedicate another hour and a half of your life during the week to be with people who will love you, who you will get to know who will take their mask off for you while you take your mask off for them. And it can be liberating and life-changing and spiritually growing. Jesus did not shepherd the masses. He shepherded 12 men who would later shepherd others, who would shepherd others. Because it is really in the intimacy of the smaller group that you can take your eyes off of those elevator buttons and actually see your brother and sister for the precious soul that needed a Messiah. I want to encourage everyone here to think seriously about devoting that hour and a half a week to meet with like-minded souls who will love you and not condemn you, but take their mask off with you and grow. And we have some great servants who are leading these groups. You need it, and so do I.